Morning. Uh, one of my favourite things to do is to listen to podcasts that have just no real value, that just kind of waste time. Uh, I, you, you wouldn't believe the amount of subscriptions that I've got to podcasts that aren't of huge value. Uh, but I came across one not too long ago, uh, and they were talking about some famous people's last words. Um, so some of them that were like maybe people had gone into battle, like their famous last words as they went off into battle, or people who had just come to the end of their life. Um, and I'm not sure that I believe all of them because they're just too cool. They're like just too well considered. Uh, but I wanted to share some uh, with you. Um, so I've got, I've got, got a bit four slides here. Uh, can we have the first one up? So this is Karl Marx's last words. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. That's cool, isn't it? That's a great thing to say. Um, so, yeah, Karl Marx knocked out of the park. Uh, the next one is Leonard Nimoy. Um, he said, a life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. L-L-A-P. What does that stand for? Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Le- Leonard Nimoy, uh, who played Spock. There we go. Excellent. Uh, and then, uh, so, again, cool, cool last words. Ne- the next one. Winston Churchill, he said, oh, I'm so bored of it all. That's <laughs> brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and then there's another one there. Ludwig van Beethoven, this, this is fantastic. Applaud, friends, the comedy is finished. Famous last words of some famous people. And then the last one, just completely relevant uh, to me in this past week. Yeah, sure, I'm happy to preach on Genesis 48 <laughs> and 49. Famous last words. Um, so as, as a church, we've been, we've been taking our time to work through the book of Genesis. Um, we've been specifically in the, the past little while looking at the life of Jacob, uh, also known as Israel, uh, and then his son, Joseph. Um, and so we, we've seen for the past few months just the life of those two um, great people of, of the book of Genesis, Jacob and Joseph. Um, and in our passage today, we're going to be reading the account of the end of Jacob's life. Uh, and the, the final words that he passed on to his sons and his grandsons. So, uh, shall we read the passage together? It's Genesis 48 and then 49 to verse 28. Um, feel free to just listen along as I read, or if you've got, got a Bible with you, or if you've got your phone, that's great. So, from Genesis 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way. A little distance from Ephrath, So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. 
Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed, removed them from Israel's knee and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the Lord, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, the younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, as one who is over your brothers, I give the land, the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will, cut, will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey, lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. 
Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches claim over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Father God, we just praise you for the reading of your word. We just pray that you'll speak to us, uh, speak to our hearts and minds uh, this morning. Just uh, teach us, admonish us, encourage us, and challenge us from your word. Amen. Uh, so, as we've seen over the past few months, Jacob has had some life. Um, he's, uh, in the course of his life, he's tricked his brother into uh, giving him the blessing that was reserved for her, his older brother, Esau. Uh, and then, as a result of that, his brother Esau is trying to kill him, chases him, so he has to run away. Uh, runs into foreign land, gets tied up with, with a woman and her sister and father-in-law, concubines, all a little bit of a mess. Uh, and then, not long after that, his, uh, his favorite son, Joseph, um, he's told, has been killed. Um, and then he's had to endure the suffering of that, only to then realize that that's not true. Um, we've learned an awful lot about Jacob as a church over the past few months. Uh, and that right there is just a whistle-stop tour. Um, but he's had a busy life, and he has definitely mixed some good decisions and situations um, with some not-so-great ones. And he is been treated and treated other people uh, in ways that I'm sure, looking back uh, at the end of his life, um, he wasn't overly happy with. Um, and his life had involved an awful lot of doing his own thing, um, living his own way at times, uh, as well as sometimes seeking after God and seeking after God's will and direction. Uh, but we can say that Jacob hasn't always got it right. Um, and so now that he's coming to the end of his life, He's gathered his, his sons and his grandsons, his family around him, to bless them, to pass on his wisdom, to, to pass on his inheritance and his possessions. Um, this would have been a fairly normal kind of process in the ancient uh, tribes of the Holy Land. Um, and it would have been a real occasion as well, gathering all the family together um, to pass on these blessings. Um, and Jacob had 12 sons, and so he obviously had an awful lot to say. Uh, to all of them. Um, I'm never again going to complain about having to read a long passage after Andy read five chapters a few weeks ago. Um, but what's great about the blessings that Jacob uh, passes on to his family is that he makes clear his priorities at the very beginning. 
Um, so at, right at the start, Jacob talks of his relationship with God. Um, he really puts an emphasis uh, on the role that God has played in his life. And we've seen that God has sometimes not been the first thing that Jacob thinks about. But now at the end of his life, we see that God is absolutely the first thing that Jacob is talking about. So um, we've got a slide here that just tells us again what we've read. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they greatly increase on the earth. So Jacob has not done hugely well in his walk with God at times throughout his life. Um, And in fact, there have been a number of times over the past few months that we've read that he has actively chosen to do things that are against God and against God's instruction. Um, Sometimes I think we have a habit of reading our Bibles uh, and we, we read of these characters and we quite often think to ourselves that the Bible is full of great godly people who are just so far away from ourselves and our own realities um, that actually when we read our Bible and read of these people, we have nothing in common with them, um, that sometimes they set a standard for living that we just can't live up to, uh, and that those people are just better and didn't face the same temptations that we do, or that these people that we read of in the Bible just wouldn't understand what it's like to get it wrong. Uh, And I just think that Jacob is such a great example of why that's not true. Um, Because despite the times that he messed up and was just generally not a great person, God repeatedly showed grace to him. And despite his repeated rebellion, despite rejecting God's instructions, despite doing his own thing from time to time, God still redeemed Jacob. Still saw the value in blessing him and remaining with him. And for me, that's as reassuring as the Bible gets at times. To know that God knows that we don't get it right every time and yet still pours out grace upon grace upon us. That even when we do our own things and actively choose the opposite of God's instructions, even then, God shows us grace. And that when we mess up, he is faithful to us. And even when we know the right thing and we choose not to do it, God doesn't turn his back on his people. So Jacob wasn't perfect. But what is great about this little passage here is that he has come to the end of his life and is still proclaiming God's goodness. Despite his up and downs, he knows the goodness of God. And I think that this happens when we invite God to be a part of our lives in a meaningful way. So when Jacob messed up and did his own thing and got it wrong, instead of running away from God, pretending that it didn't happen and wallowing in self-pity, he would regularly come back, repent, seek God's forgiveness and reconcile himself with his God. He immersed himself and his life in God. So God was a consistent part of Jacob's life, always with him, even when Jacob struggled or rebelled, God was there. And so that's what caused God to be who and what Jacob was most eager to share with his family that had gathered around him at the end of his life. I'm sure that there were an awful lot of other much more practical things that could have been discussed as the head of a family, the head of a tribe, um, things like who cuts the hedge and all that. But Jacob is prioritizing God, ensuring that he shares his faith in God with his family. 
nothing was more important to him. And there would have been absolutely no doubt at all for anyone in his family that this was the case. And just reading this this week has made me wonder how known we are for our faith, how known I am for my faith. Do I, do I talk about my faith? Do we talk about our faith around the dinner table or during lunch at work? Do we take opportunities, every opportunity that comes to us, to tell people about the God that we believe in? And if not, then why not? I am probably most well known for talking about football. Um, I love football. It almost seeps out of me. Um, and if you asked people who knew me what I am like, I think football would probably come up an awful lot. Um, but in all honesty, that, that is not what I want. I want to know and love God more than anything else, even more than football. And as I live my life, I want to be known as someone who, lived, who loved God and lived for him. And towards the end of my life, I want my relationship with God to be so wrapped up in who I am that I'm still talking about how good he is in my last days, like Jacob was. And that's not so that people can say, that Ryan was a great man of God, but so that people will say, wow, there must be something about this God that he believed in. I need to find out more about this God. So I don't want my faith to just be stuck on the side, something that just happens on a Sunday or whenever I need a favor. I want my faith in God to be so wrapped up in who I am and in my identity that he is what I think and talk about more than anything else. Jacob ended his life making sure that everyone around him knew of his love for God. And he left this earth with a deep desire to see those people know God the way that he did. And honestly, is there a single thing in this world that's worth more than that? When we think about how our lives are going to play out, do we really want to be known for our achievements? How long and how hard we worked? Do we want to be remembered for the places that we've been to and the experiences that we've had or how funny we are or how good our stories are, how many likes we have on Instagram or how many Newcastle matches we went to? Honestly, I want and I think all Christians should want to make sure that everyone around us knows of our love for God and have a desire to see those people know God the way that we do in a personal way. It's just an amazing reality for those of us living in the world today that we can know this same God that Jacob knew personally. And so that, that amazing reality, the fact that we can know that, is made possible and is explained in Jacob's blessing of his son Judah. Uh, so on our next slide here we've got, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. There's an awful lot going on in there, uh, all of which just has huge implications for the future of humankind. Uh, but first, I think it's really important to emphasize that 
Jacob hasn't just gathered around his family and he's not just telling them what he's hoping for um, or what he wants them to go on to be or to achieve. Um, Actually, the blessings that we read of to these 12 sons of Jacob and his two grandsons, these are prophetic words. And so they have come directly from God. God speaks through Jacob for the purpose not only to inform his family of the future, but to inform all of humankind of what is to come. To teach anyone who reads this book, the word of God, about what God will do through his family and through the tribes of Israel. And we just don't have the time this morning, but if it interests you, then you can feel free to go away and study each of these tribes. Follow the lines of the tribes into the years following these blessings. You can read about how the tribe of Dan lay in wait to surprise and attack the people of Laish in Judges 18, or how the Apostle Paul, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, how he looks and acts like a ravenous wolf before he meets Jesus. Feel free to go away and read up on how the Spirit of God spoke prophecy through Jacob that came to be true. But what I'm really interested in this morning, and what I want us to understand, is the prophecy that Jacob speaks of his future descendants of the, fam- of the family of his son, Judah. Because although this whole thing that we've just read of happened about 3,500 years ago, I do not think that there is anything that is more important in the history of this world to have happened to us as humans. Because nearly 1,500 years after this, Jesus was born into a family of the tribe of Judah. And that singular event literally changed the course of history. And Jacob prophesied exactly that. You're a lion's cub, you return from the prey. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, that's Jesus, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This lion of Judah was born in the town of Bethlehem more than 1,500 years after Jacob proclaimed this. And and the purpose for that? To reunite the people of our world back to the God that created them. Because the overarching story of the Bible is that God created this world. And when he did, he created it to be perfect. He created humankind to be a part of it and to be in a perfect relationship with himself, the God that created them. But what we read is that humankind has broken that relationship apart. Since God created us, there hasn't been a single person except for one to live and walk on this planet that hasn't rebelled against the God that created us. That rebellion, the Bible very clearly calls sin. And the Bible is clear that sin is the single contributor to what has gone wrong in our world today. That sin is the source of all of the hurt and anger and brokenness and discontent in the world around us. That sin is the reason that we have a restlessness within ourselves. Sin is the reason that we are never satisfied with what we have. Sin is the reason that we can't find fulfillment in stuff or experiences, or in fact, anything at all that the world says will make us happy. Because every single person that has ever walked on this planet 
was created to be in a relationship, to walk with and to know the God that created them. That was the plan. But sin has torn us away from that God. That sin stands between us and the God that created us. And can't you just feel it somewhere deep inside inside you as well? A deep sense that something just isn't quite right. That the world is just broken. The way that people treat each other. The wars, the hurt, the brokenness. I absolutely believe that the the same things that cause us sadness and anger and the things that break our hearts, I also think break God's heart. For some reason, a lot of people have bought into the narrative that if there is suffering or evil happening in the world, then God, if he exists, must just be sitting back and letting it happen. But when I read my Bible, I don't read of a God who responds like that. I read of a God who sees what sin has done to this world and to the creation that he made and to the people that he loves, and I think it breaks his heart. And that includes us. When he sees us, when he sees the way that we live our lives, the thoughts of our minds, the decisions that we make, I think it breaks his heart. And this is such a countercultural message. Everything around us tells us to embrace who we are, to take ownership of our identity. Do what makes you happy. Find fulfillment in yourself. But the problem with that is that we're broken. If, if the solution could be found within ourselves or somewhere else in the things and the, the stuff of the world, then why are we still broken? The message of the Bible is that we are not the way that we are created to be. That's not easy to hear, but that's also not the end of the story because the Bible also tells us that the same God who created us loves us enough that he just was not willing to leave us that way. God made a promise to Jacob that through him and his people, every single person who lived on this earth would be blessed. This is from Genesis 28. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. This is the promise to Jacob. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The blessing that God promised to all peoples on earth was the solution to the problem of sin. It was a fix for what is broken. Through the descendants of Jacob, God would fix the brokenness that sin causes in our world. And that alone is just a huge claim that the Bible is making. That every single thing that is wrong with this world, every sin, every cause of hurt, every broken relationship, every wrongdoing, every injustice, all of that will be fixed by this promise that God has made to Jacob. And from the line of the tribe of Judah was born a man named Jesus. And in him, in one man, we see the person that was described and that fulfilled this prophecy made to Jacob through Judah. The most famous verse in the Bible says this, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That might be the first time you've ever heard that, or it might be the thousandth. Either way, those words should resonate deeply within us. And even if you know those words off by heart, it should stir something inside us. Because there are no words that have ever been written or spoken that have more impact on every single one of us. In response to our sin and the sin that is just so present and so damaging in our world, God sent a solution, a remedy, a fix. And that was his son, his one and only precious son, to die on a cross and by doing doing so, take the punishment for our sin to fix us. This is good news. This is life-changing news. In fact, it's the greatest news ever, and it's the greatest story ever told. In the book of Romans, it's explained even further. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived a life completely free from sin so that he could take the punishment that we deserve. And when he did that, he fulfilled the prophecy, the promise to his ancestor Jacob 1,500 years earlier. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. What really strikes me about the story that the Bible tells us of God and his creation is that God just has every right to look at what we have done to his perfect creation as sinful humans and completely wipe his hands of us. If we believe that all that we see around us has been made by a God who is perfect and holy but has been tainted and ruined by humanity that is sinful and rebelling against him, then logically we can state that he has every right to just wipe all of us out with a word from his mouth. But rather than that, rather than wiping us out, rather than wiping his hands of us, God pours out love and grace and mercy on us. He demonstrated that love, that grace, that mercy by sending his son to rescue us, to heal us, clean us, and set us free from sin. That because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross, we can ask for and receive forgiveness and be made clean, holy, spotless, exactly as we were first created to be. That good news, if it is the first time we have ever heard it, or if it's the thousandth, should resonate deeply within us. In fact, it should cause us to fall flat on our faces in worship of the living God. This is the savior that our world has been crying out for. In fact, groaning for, for thousands of years. Finally, an answer to the problem that has caused so much pain and suffering and has torn us apart from the God that created us. Because of Jesus, we can find ourselves back in relationship with our creator. And if that doesn't cause us to worship the Lord, 
regardless of how often we've heard it, then maybe there's something wrong. If me saying that doesn't cause something inside of you to leap for joy, then maybe we've just become too comfortable or too numb to it. Maybe we need to reevaluate just how important that news is and how life-changing it can be. And honestly, how could we do anything other than leave this place today and declare how good God is? How could we do anything other than go and tell every single person that we know that Jesus died for them, to bring them back to the God that created them? That for someone to know personally and be reunited to the very God that created them can be achieved simply by asking him is staggeringly good news. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. The prophecy given to Judah claims that Judah is a lion, considered in biblical times to be the strongest and mightiest and most royal of the animals. And on top of that, Judah will hold a scepter and a ruler's staff will be at his feet. All of the imagery in this prophecy suggests royalty. The lion, the king of animals, a scepter, a staff, signifying one who rules and reigns. For centuries and still to this day, all three of those are images of royalty. And this prophecy includes a promise that all the nations will be his and will bow down to him. Every single nation on earth. The Bible is clear that there is a day that is coming in the future when the majesty and glory of this royal king, Jesus, will be revealed to every single person. That no one will be in any doubt at all of his glory and majesty. This is what the book of Revelation tells us will happen one day. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Jesus, the promised lion of Judah, strong, powerful and mighty, will one day come in in full glory. And on that day, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind at all about who he is. Every single being in all of God's creation, every person who lives and has lived, will fall on their faces and worship the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And no one will be in any doubt then that he has defeated death and sin. And we will not be able to do anything else but fall flat on our faces and say you are worthy. Worthy of our praise, adoration, worship, time. The splendor majesty of this king alone demands everything that we have to give him. And so every single creature will worship. That will happen. It's been promised. But while we live on this earth, we have to decide if we are going to do that willingly or not. Are we going to decide that this king who has laid down his life for us is deserving of our lives, our time, our devotion? Or are we just going to insist on living our lives our own way, rejecting this king, rejecting the king who is deserving of it all? Or are we going to give everything over to him in acknowledgement that he deserves it? Back in verse 15 of chapter 48, Jacob said that the God that we worship is the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Jacob's life is a reminder to us that living for God is a daily choice. That each day we find ourselves under the care of our great shepherd. Sometimes we walk closely beside him. Sometimes we'll stray away from him. Jacob lived a life exactly like that. And even then, when we stray away, the shepherd comes looking for us. David knew this to be true. He wrote Psalm 23 based on it. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And Jesus uses the same image of shepherding in John 10 when he tells his followers, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the same Jesus the same king who will come in power and splendor and majesty. The same king offers to be our shepherd, to love and care for us daily. Sometimes it's hard for us, I think, to believe that God could love us the way that the Bible says that he does. We look at ourselves and our lives and say, I am too far gone, or I have sinned too much, or I don't spend enough time with God. I keep messing up. And letting God down. He must be sick of hearing me say sorry. All of those thoughts might go through our heads from time to time. But when we start telling ourselves those things, we stop acknowledging what the Bible actually tells us about God. And that is just very simply that He loves us way, way more than we can even begin to imagine. And here's the thing God doesn't just put up with us. There's nothing in the Bible to assume that God looks at our lives and says, man, I wish I hadn't created that lot. If that's what you think, then that's a lie of the devil and you need to reject it. Because the exact opposite is true. What the Bible is full full of is truths that God loves us, that he delights in us, that it pleases him to give us good things, that he delights over us, It pleases him when we draw near to him and when we delight in him. That is mind-blowing. It's it's ludicrous. It's such a big claim that we just don't appreciate enough. What's great is we don't approach the throne of the king in shame and in guilt, but with confidence, with the reassurance of being washed clean 
and made right by the blood of Christ. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross for you is that you can approach the throne of the living God with confidence that he has achieved the perfection that we just never could. That's why we should be living in the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the good news. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jacob lived his life with his good shepherd and got to the end proclaiming how good he is. He can't help but praise him and tell his family and loved ones about this God, this good shepherd. This good shepherd was the most important thing in his life. And so he proclaimed that until his last day. The life of Jacob shows us that there is no greater way to live our lives than to do the same. And that there is no reason at all for us to not live in the exact same way, giving everything over to God on a daily basis, living for him and delighting in him. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you for your word. We praise you that we can learn about you and from you through it. We praise you for the fact that it's not just a book of words, that it is alive and it is active. We praise you for truths. We praise you for the fact that we can read prophecies from nearly 4,000 years ago that speak directly into our lives and into our situations. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that he died on a cross, that he took the punishment for the sins of this world. And we praise you that you have given us a way to know you again, to know the God that created us. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. I just pray that you'll challenge us, challenge us in our hearts and our minds this week to consider where we stand before you, to consider how important you are in our lives, to make a decision, maybe for the first time, to live, to live for you, to give our lives over to you. I just pray that as we go out from this place this morning, that you'll put within us just a desire to make you known, to proclaim your goodness, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the people in our lives. We just praise you for the fact that your son Jesus came so that we might have life and live it to the full. I pray that you'll help us to know what that means on a daily basis and to live that out. Amen.